Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. So much for the dog days of summer. Two landmark pieces of legislation, a major river runs dry, inflation takes a holiday, and the FBI searches former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Welcome to August. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David West. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on not counting our chickens too soon on inflation. We've sort of seen this movie before. And Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland on the risk of running out of workers. Our population is going to age and it's not going to grow. Eventually, we're going to have a shrinking working age population.
Things are supposed to be quiet in August, but the news gods haven't gotten that message. The week started off dramatically as dozens of FBI agents executed a warrant to search former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Trump allies were quick to comment. It's unprecedented that you would go into a former president. Why wouldn't they just ask the president if they have something there that they want? But Attorney General Merrick Garland waited until the end of the week before weighing in. I personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Second, the department does not take such a decision lightly. And then on Friday, we got to see the warrant and what was taken. The FBI has again seized classified records, some that were marked as top secret, from former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And this was a copy of the search warrant that was seen by Bloomberg. Congress moved forward on not one, but two pieces of major legislation, that CHIPS Act that's been pending forever. The United States must lead the world in the production of these advanced chips. This law will do exactly that. And a piece or two of the Build Back Better proposal that had been left for dead, but came back like Lazarus at the 11th hour and the 59th minute. And the bill, as amended, is passed. And though summer in the Northern Hemisphere is supposed to be hot, not so hot that Europe's Rhine River dries up, posing yet another problem for strained supply chains. It's also just getting extremely expensive. Uh, the same barge owner I was speaking to before, he said that he literally fell off his chair when he saw the, the cost of shipping on the Rhine. But as hot as things were everywhere else, inflation chose this week to cool down a bit with headline CPI numbers flat month over month and core up less than expected. Though, to be fair, we still are facing more inflation than anyone would like. It is good news, although I do think we have to be cautious. As we've said all along, there's no silver bullet here. And after the producer price index numbers reinforced the idea that inflation just might be softening a bit, the markets responded warmly, with the S&P 500 posting its fourth weekly climb in a row, up 3.26%, and the Nasdaq back in bull territory, up over 3%, while bonds were relatively calm, with the yield on the 10-year ending the week not far from where it started at 2.83%. Here to help us sort it all out are Joanne Feeney, Portfolio Manager at Advisors Capital Management, and Christina Hooper, Chief global market strategist at Invesco. So welcome to both of you. Christina, let me start with you on the reaction of the markets to this uh, CPI and PPI numbers. Some encouragement. Uh, does it sort of suggest maybe we're heading in a better direction? David, we're definitely heading in a better direction. Um, it looks like we're past peak for inflation, but the problem is inflation is still very, very high. If we think about the Fed's inflation target of 2%, we're way far away from that, and it's going to take us a significant amount of time to get there. Um, but this is the first step in that direction, and so it's progress. Joanne, I think the market yeah. sort of thought maybe we can back off a little bit. Well, the market, I think, might be a little bit too optimistic about how much work the Fed still has to do. Uh, yes, uh, the numbers have been good. In fact, uh, core PC inflation looks like it peaked back in March. Um, we got that information. And that's a positive. And we're starting to see some of those items that were in really short supply uh, now start to become more available. And that's helping to take the price pressure off. So, Christina, take us over the next month and a half or so, because we got Jackson Hole first, right? We'll hear from Fed speakers, including Jay Powell. And then there's a fair amount of data. I think we get another CPI reading or two. We get jobs numbers reading, things like that. Where do you think the Fed will be come September? Hmm. Well, I'm actually going to go out on a limb, David, and say we're probably going to be in a place where the Fed 
feels it should err on the side of a little more caution. Right, we've gone at a pretty breakneck speed in terms of back-to-back -back 75 basis point hikes. And the Fed is, as Joanne said, very data dependent. So it's going to be looking at data and seeing that longer-term inflation expectations are better anchored than they were. Um, and they are going to see inflation moving in the right direction. Uh, inflation growth uh, is obviously still an issue, so they're going to be hiking rates, but they don't have to be as aggressive. So perhaps they signal it in a Jackson Hole speech that might be too premature, but I think by the time we get to September, October, we should see a Fed that pivots to a less hawkish tightening stance. You know, I think the critical data, uh, in addition to what you just mentioned, Christina, is going to be the employee cost index, that ECI. But we know the labor market is very tight, and we're concerned, right, that wages are going to continue to rise, and that's going to put a floor really under price inflation as those bleed through into prices from firms. And we're seeing that a lot. We're seeing firms actually be pretty successful at raising prices in the face of those higher costs. So, you know, if, if job openings drop, and some of the, the heat comes out of the labor market it, and we don't get as large increases in wages and overall uh, employee costs, then I could see the Fed, you know, uh, becoming a little bit more at ease. Christina Hooper of Invesco and Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management will be staying with us as we turn from the markets generally to what investors can do about them. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Housing starts reversed a four-month decline, and the overall economy grew in the spring at a modest 2.3% annual rate, but amid signs that inflation was again easing. That wasn't good news for everyone this week. The oil market stepped into a poodle, with the price taking its biggest one-day hit in almost a year, and every currency in sight took a bite out of the dollar. That was Louis Ruckheiser's take on the economy on Wall Street Week back in 1987. Now, 35 years later, we're still focused on housing and energy and growth, but from a very different vantage point. Joanne Feeney of Capital Management and Christina Hooper of uh, Invesco are still with us. So, Joanne, let me start with you, if I could. Uh, let's talk about housing, because there's a lot of talk about housing right now, whether we, in fact, are in a bubble. Obviously, housing prices have gone up a lot. Rent costs are really in record levels in various places. At the same time, the Fed's trying to come off of that sugar high. Yeah, it's... Uh... Um, clearly a reset going on in the housing market. Um, you know, that those low interest rates clearly created a lot of uh, demand, a lot of activity in the housing market. But people shouldn't forget that there's still an awful lot of younger folks out there who have delayed getting into their first, first homes. And, and that latent demand is still out there. And I think what we're seeing now is a reevaluation of how much house can I afford. And so we have seen people walk away from contracts. We've seen the builders slow down a little bit. But given how high mortgage rates are, the existing homeowners don't want to get out of their old cheap mortgages. So that's going to push demand to the new builds. So we're still pretty enthusiastic about some of the plays in the new, uh, you know, in, in new building for housing, like say a Lennar, for example, which tends to serve that lower end, the first home buyer or the one step up home buyer. So there are places to be in housing. Uh, you just have to be a little bit patient here as this reset plays through and folks renegotiate contracts and then find slightly cheaper houses to buy. So, Christina, uh, Christina you heard about Lennar there, maybe, the lower-end housing market. What are you seeing? There's a lot of volatility in the marketplace. Where does it create opportunities for investors at this point? 
Well, it creates opportunities uh, really at, at times when we see um, uh, sell-offs. Of course, we haven't seen much of a sell-off in, in recent weeks, but, but when we do get those, that's an opportunity for investors to reshuffle portfolios, right? And, and sometimes it's about exchanging lower quality, um, less defensive for higher quality, more defensive, getting a little more yield in there. So I think areas that I would focus on right now are, are opportunities in healthcare like pharma, uh, as well as, as technology, the secular growth plays there. Jo Joanne, one of the things obviously that's been driving the U.S. economy for some time are consumers. Uh, consumers had a, a pretty good time of it. They've had really good balance sheets. They've got a very, fair amount of uh, income coming in. At the same time, there's more pressure there now. What does that say in terms of investing in stocks if, in fact, there's more pressure on the consumer? Yeah, you know, it, it's become a very challenging time to invest in the consumer space because what we have going on now is really a tale of two consumers. We have folks at the lower to middle end of the income distribution really being hurt by these high prices, this high inflation. For them, it's making their budgets a lot tighter. And so we're seeing that in the results of, say, a Walmart and a Target, where they're finding their shoppers aren't spending less, but they're switching away from discretionary products towards the necessities which have lower margins, so it's hurting their profits. But then you look at the higher end of the income distribution, you see companies like Apple selling expensive iPhones. They're not seeing a drop in demand. Or say a Williams-Sonoma, right? They sell higher end uh, you know, kitchen gear and furnishing type stuff, and they're not really seeing a drop. So it really depends what kind of a consumer products company you are and how much you can raise prices because you have a resilient uh, supply of, of shoppers or how much you're having to really trim them back to keep the shoppers walking in the door. And so it does make it a real selection question. And to Christina's point, finding the higher quality companies that have the more resilient shoppers is really gonna help uh, your portfolio. David, I would just argue that in this environment, having seen gas prices come down significantly, um, real incomes aren't as pressured now as they were uh, just a little while ago. So I think that that um, chasm between uh, those two sets of consumers might not be as wide. Um, there's a little alleviation of, of the pressure on lower and middle income American households right now just because uh, energy prices have come down. So it's certainly not a, a much better situation, but it is um, materially better, and we saw that borne out in the most recent consumer sentiment numbers. Talk about earnings, if you would, Christina, for a moment. We're just getting through the earnings season here. If we're seeing a tale of two consumers, as we just heard from Joanna, are we seeing a tale of two sets of companies as well, about high quality versus less high quality? Well, certainly there are some companies that are far better able to pass on their costs than others. Um, there are those that are really experiencing a reduction in traffic, for example, if we're looking at some of the retailers, um, and, and others that have, have held up fairly well. So I think you know, going forward, what we're going to have to make an assessment on is, is which are those higher quality companies that can defend their margins, that can pass on prices, uh, that can weather this storm better. Um, because let's face it, it's going to be, you know, um, there are going to be some significant headwinds in the next two quarters, I would argue. Joanne, as a portfolio manager, how are you feeling about tech these days? I know tech covers an awful lot of sins. There are a lot of different things called tech. But how are you feeling? Are there opportunities right now in tech? Oh, yeah, I think there definitely are. You know, it could take some patience, uh, really, for investors to, to reap the rewards of tech. But when we look at technology, what we look for are companies that are in the middle of a change in the way things are done. 
a demand coming from the market, whether it's demographics or tastes. But, you know, the cloud area, companies shifting their activities away from internal servers, say, to the cloud, this is still happening. And more traffic on the Internet is pushing data centers to have to expand and build in faster, wider pipes. So if you look for the companies that supply the parts to enable that, you know, they're going to be able to sell well no matter what happens in terms of the cyclical side of the economy. And generally, if you if you pick and choose carefully, you can find ones that have deep moats around them that don't have a lot of competition. You're not buying into companies that are selling commodities. So you know whether it's a Broadcom or an Amazon, which really enables the cloud, or a Microsoft, which enables the software to make all this work. These are companies that are going to power through. They're going to be a little bit cyclical, but they're going to hold up better than others will. Christina, finally, let's go overseas if we could, because uh, we've talked about the Fed. Uh, however fast they're going to tighten, they're tightening, no question about it. Europe looks like they're tightening. There are some places like Japan and China that may be going the other direction. Does that create an opportunity for investors? I think so, David. It's not just a difference in terms of monetary policy. So we both ha we have China easing and we have Japan remaining very easy. Um, but it's also fiscal stimulus. We're seeing fiscal stimulus in both those countries, whereas in the U.S. and, and other Western developed countries, they're pulling back on stimulus. And so uh, that sets up an environment in which there are built-in tailwinds that we're just not seeing here. I think there's potential there. Now, when we look specifically at China equities, there's a lot of pessimism right now around China, especially given headlines around the property sector. But if you ring fence the property sector and, and look at, at um, the, the broader market, especially technology, there are a lot of opportunities in China equities, and I think there's the potential for positive surprise. Thank you so much to Christina Hooper of Invesco and Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management. Coming up, we ask our special contributor Larry Summers whether those CPI numbers have him feeling any better about inflation. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. 
And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. To take us through the high points of this week, we welcome back our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining us from Aspen, actually, this week. We'll talk a little later about what you're doing out there. But first, we got CPI numbers this week. On Wednesday, they came in significantly better than a lot of people thought they would. So uh, do you find some relief from this? Are we over the worst of it when it comes to inflation? I think these were encouraging numbers. We, we knew that the headline number was going to be coming substantially down because we could see what had happened with gasoline prices. The core number was better than most people uh, expected. Uh, that's certainly better than the alternative uh, to that. On the other hand, it was heavily driven by volatile sectors like used cars, like hotels, like airfares. We've sort of seen this movie before. We had a terrific core number in March, but it was from those volatile sectors, and then it bounced back up in April, May, and June. So we'll have to see uh, what happens going forward, but this is certainly a better number than most people uh, expected, and it will come as a bit of relief uh, to the Fed. But I certainly think it's nothing like we are out of the woods. It's nothing like a fundamental change in uh, the orientation. It's nothing that means that we can pivot away from the overwhelming paradigm being a need for restrictive policy to contain inflation. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. Some relief for the Fed, you said. Is there a risk in that? You've warned me before about backing off too quickly in the cooling of the economy. Is there a risk the Fed pays too much attention to numbers like these? We'll have to, we'll have to see what they do. Uh, if the Fed regards this as a major game changer, they will be making another major mistake. I would be surprised if they regarded it that way, because I think when you look within it, you'll see that seasonally adjusted airfares coming out of two Julys when airfares were highly distorted by COVID. How could you take that seriously as a huge harbinger of new uh, trends? So I don't think they will make uh, that kind of mistake. They certainly shouldn't make that kind of mistake. But, you know, you get out of woods uh, and even deep woods, you get out of them one step at a time. 
So I don't want to deny that this is that there's some encouragement uh, in this number, but overreacting uh, to that would be a grave mistake. I think on your show before, David, I've talked about uh, how prudent people finish their regimen of antibiotics even as they're gratified four days in that they feel better. And I still think that's the right metaphor for thinking about uh, this situation. Larry, you and I have talked a lot about rates. What about the balance sheet? Because I'm going to say just about every week after we get done on this program, somebody emails me and says, what about the balance sheet? How effective is the balance sheet in helping to slow down the economy, get our arms around inflation? And are they doing it the right way? Should they be coming off the balance sheet even faster than they are? I wonder if they should come off uh, faster uh, than they are. I think the clearest statement about the balance sheet is that they should have stopped buying six or nine months earlier than they did. I think it's clear that we had something that history will look back on as a bit of a housing bubble. And I think they contributed to that by buying mortgage-backed securities. Now, I certainly think they're going in the right direction with QT rather than uh, QE. Could they do it faster? Perhaps they could. Would it make a major difference? I'm not sure that it would. Would it add to financial risk? It might in terms of some kind of accident in markets. Uh, In general, David, I think that yields are driven more by the fundamentals of what's happening in the economy and less by central bank policies like uh, QT and QE that I think many in the markets think, you know, I could be right about that or I could be, uh, or I could be wrong. But I think people often ascribe to the direct impact of these policies what is in fact a signaling with respect to future monetary policies. And I don't think that now this is an area of stability. The Fed has set an expectation. That expectation is underway. I wouldn't be recommending a major change in balance sheet policies at uh, at this point. Okay, Larry Summers, I'm delighted to say you'll be staying with us because we're going to be joined by Melissa Carney. She's a professor of economics at Maryland, and she has convened Larry and some other esteemed economists in Aspen to address the very important question of after we come through whatever downturn we're going through, where will the growth come from? That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there.
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Our special contributor, Larry Summers, has stayed with us. And we are joined now by Melissa Carney. She's professor of economics at the University of Maryland, also director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, which she has convened in Aspen this week with Larry and other esteemed economists to address a critical question, really, of whether the United States could be facing stagflation. So, Melissa, welcome to Wall Street Week. Great to have you here. Let's start with the question of where growth will come on the other side of whatever it is we're going through, because that's ultimately going to be the question here. I understand from economists like you, it comes from one of two sources, either more workers or more productivity. Are we going to get more workers? We're looking at both fewer workers and lower productivity, as you know. So let me focus on the fewer workers uh, aspect for a moment. The real issue, demographic issue facing the U.S. is we have a plummeting birth rate. And so total fertility in the U.S. is now below the level required to keep population growth constant. And so the issue here is that on average now, a woman in the U.S. is expected to have 1.65 children over her lifetime. So women used to have three kids, then it fell to two. Women were having comfortably above two kids for many decades. With a, with a fertility rate below two, that means our population is going to age and it's not gonna grow. And so eventually we're going to have a shrinking working age population. Unless, Melissa, we have uh, immigration. That's right. And that's why immigration, I think many of us at this conference feel is so very, very important. 
What's your sense of what economists would say, the politics apart, um, about the immigration policy? Economists love immigration. We think immigration is a, is a potential answer to our demographic challenges, as well as our productivity innovation challenges. Since immigrants come in, they work, they're more likely than native-born Americans to be entrepreneurs and innovators. Of course, as you know, Larry, immigration rates are way down. So we used to bring in, as you know, 2016, we had as many as a million new people coming into the country every year. That number is now below 250,000. And so the combination of a declining native-born population and a decline in immigration portends even worse demographic challenges than if we were just facing one versus the other. Let me see if I can do a little arithmetic based on what you said. From 1 million to yeah. 250,000. Yeah. So that's about 750,000 people a year. So that's about half a percent of our workforce, maybe a little less. So half a percent slower labor force uh, growth over time can accumulate to something uh, that, is very, that is very large. And, and if we go back to the birth rates, we have about 500,000 fewer babies being born a year than in the not distant past. Melissa, if you, um, what would you say about, about this? Um, most people are scared that immigrants come and they take jobs for Americans. And that if there are more immigrants, then there aren't going to be as many jobs for Americans. Or if there are jobs, because there's more competition, uh, they're going to be paid less. And that's true whether the job, people think, is working at McDonald's or is uh, working doing computer programming at Microsoft. What, how do you, how should people feel? Shouldn't they, ha shouldn't they have this worry that they're going to be poorer if we take all the immigrants, just like they get hurt if we take a lot of, low, a lot of trade from other countries right. where they have much lower wages? So, so the reason economists are so bullish on immigration is because we have so much evidence that immigrants are good for the economy. They are good for most workers. But it is true that there are some groups in some places that will feel wage pressures. And I think the way, we, the way we solve this issue is to make sure that we recognize the disparate impacts of certain groups. We recognize that low-wage workers in certain sectors might not experience the benefits, the overall benefits that immigrants bring to the economy, and we take steps to help them. I mean, it's not, it's not dissimilar to what we have to do with trade, too. You know, more imports is good for most people, but some people are harmed by it. We're going to see this, too, with the shift to green, a greener um, economy. Some people are going to lose their jobs, even though it's better for everyone. And so, I mean, I, I think acknowledging that some people feel and are harmed by this, but that's a small, concentrated group, and taking steps to address that allows us to do things that make the economy grow and, right. and be more productive. Sorry, Melissa, I wanted to come back to fertility. Larry's pointed out a way in which economics, whether misperceived or not, may affect our willingness to have immigration. What about fertility? Are there economic causes for the reduction in fertility? So the decline in U.S. fertility, and it's really being driven by a plummeting of birth rates since 2007. Births fell after the Great Recession. They haven't recovered. Um, you can't point to any 
any policy or economic factor that's changed since 2007. So sometimes people will say things like childcare has become more expensive, and if we just made childcare less expensive, people would return to having more than two kids. I, I, there, I not, that is just not the case, right? There's nothing, uh, there's nothing that easy that we could point to. And in fact, U.S. women now are just having births in the same way that women in other high-income countries have reduced their birth rates long before in the 80s and 90s. So I don't think this is going to be easy to turn around. Lots of other countries have taken direct steps to try and incentivize people to have more kids. There's a lot of countries that have experimented with baby bonuses, a few thousand dollars. Birth rates go up a little bit in the following year, but nothing like the 20% increase in infertility we would need to get back to replacement level. Melissa, having an expert like you here, I can't resist uh, stepping out of our mutual lane as economists to ask a question I suspect is on many people's minds. Do you think that the recent Supreme Court decision and the steps that are going to be taken in a number of states, do you think that's going to materially affect the number of births in the United States? The we do have estimates on this based based on you know lots of data we have about how abortion restrictions you know lead to more birth rates. I expect there will be about a uh, hundred thousand more births a year. Um, so uh, yes, not this is. This is not going to bring fertility rates back to where they were. This is going to mean that some women who wouldn't want to have a child now are going to. Um, since you raised the issue, I will say that this makes the imperative of doing more to support kids and low-income women in this country that much stronger. Hmm. Which is, you know, that, that was something that Congress was talking about for a brief moment uh, in the initial Build Back Better. That stuff got jettisoned. In the post-Dobbs decision paradigm, we are going to have some more births disproportionately born to low-income women, and we need to talk about how we're going to make sure that those children are well taken care of. So, Larry, can we make up uh, the loss of uh, population and workers with productivity? We have the Chips and Science Act now. We have the Inflation Reduction Act, both of which I understand are meant to increase productivity. Can we make it up in increased productivity? You know, Melissa organized a terrific session here on uh, R&D and science leadership uh, issues. I think there's a lot we can do, but it's both about spending money and it's about spending it well. Thank you so much. It's been a great discussion. I wish I were out there and asked with you. I could learn a lot more. But thank you so much to our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, and Melissa Carney, professor of economics at the University of Maryland. Finally, one more thought. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, at least according to Shakespeare's Henry IV. And it's not only heavy, it's hard to pass that crown onto the next head, at least judging by how often it doesn't seem to work. We don't have to go all the way back to Lear to find leaders bungling their succession plans. We have divided in three our kingdom. Tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths. We all know how that worked out for King Lear. And there are plenty of more recent examples, though, particularly in the world of business, like Jack Welch anointing Jeff Immelt to carry on his legend at GE, something that didn't work out so well, although Jeff seemed to be the last to know when he spoke to our John Micklesweight in 2017, not long before he had his crown removed. We always have a group of successors, and I always think you, you got to earn it every day. So you've yeah, been doing it a while. I feel great, and we'll see where it goes. 
Or Kevin Johnson, who had the bad fortune to be the second CEO to replace Starbucks chief Howard Schultz, only to be succeeded by, you guessed it, Howard Schultz. Though when I spoke with Kevin in 2019, he admitted that it was tricky. In a transition from founder-led to founder-inspired, those transitions oftentimes are the most difficult and the most critical transition that any company will go through. And this week, we got yet another example. When the founders of the Carlyle Group announced that their hand-picked heir, Kusan Lee, would be leaving abruptly to be replaced, at least temporarily, by Bill Conway, one of those founders who'd picked him. This has definitely shaken the investment universe. Let's not be coy about it. 10 p.m. Eastern on a Sunday night. Uh, and remember, like I said, he's stepping down before the contract is even up. But it wasn't only Q. Lee who stepped down this week. We also saw a legend prepared to move on when Serena Williams, arguably the greatest of all time in women's tennis, announced that she would be retiring after the U.S. Open this year, something she had just joked about earlier. Every tennis player thinks about the R word as soon as they hit five years. <laughs> and when it comes to Serena, I'm not sure that we're going to see any successor anytime soon. So given how much drama there is around the subject, it shouldn't be surprising that there is a hit TV drama series given over to the matter of succession. Because it's one thing to know the boss has to go. It's quite another to figure out who should be the new boss, especially if you're warring with family members. He's erratic. He's making bad decisions. If he's not careful, he's going to destroy the company. And what, are you going to do something? I think I'm the best option. Oh, right, because you like playing boss? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.